Hello, everyone. Welcome to Life on Earth podcast. I am your host, Natalie Craft. Thank you for joining us on the show. I am super stoked, super excited about our next guest today. His name is Joshua Stevens. He is an elite mountain athlete. Joshua Stevens was born in Maine, Rockland. His hometown at this present moment is Estes Park in Colorado. He's a professional mountain ultra trail runner. Among his many achievements, it's Badwater Ultra Cup champion. And he also completed the Badwater 135 and Leadville Trail. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. 100 run within 30 days of each other. As I hear from many of my friends and from Joshua, Badwater is just a crazy and really it requires a lot to compete in that. And there is, as you will hear from Joshua, there was 100 participants, invitations to do this run, this race. And I think this is, this is just something that speaks a lot about him and all the endurance and the strength and the focus, athleticism that he has. And that he is here today to share with you. And also very kindly, he's very open about his experiences and sharing it with the world. Joshua was also a lieutenant colonel. He is retired from the United States Army. He served in a variety of infantry and special operation units, numerous combats, deployments. You will hear all about it on the show. He is quite kind to tell us about his experiences and some of the things that have happened to him while he was under 25 years, I believe, that he was in the army. So among his many accomplishments, that was a Purple Heart recipient, and he also earned two Bronze Stars. Joshua has three children. There's so many things that he goes into. I really appreciated hearing from his background. And I also appreciated hearing how he overcame many of the challenges that has presented in his life. And what were the underlying light in his character, right? Such as discipline and mental focus and things like that, that really kind of kept him going and kept him through it, which all of us can learn from that. We also talked about how life has ups and downs, is not always happy, 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 which I love. And furthermore, where he is in his life right now with all of his accomplishments, not only from the army, but athleticism and his focus and his mindset and optimism and, you know, overcoming addiction and all these things and where he is right now and tips that he has offered to us so that we can get up each and every day. And as we say on the podcast, on this episode, win our mornings, which hence win our days and become a better version of ourselves each and every day. This episode is brought to you by Shanti Yoga Training School. Among our 200, 300, 500, and even 100-hour now yoga teacher training programs, we often forget to mention, but we do have a pretty extensive and amazing continuing education program, YACEP. You can find this on nataliecrad.com and then go to the members portal. If you scroll down, you will see the different membership 
levels that you can join, but for as little as $30 a month, you get to participate in one of these live Zoom sessions where I cover different topics from our training school each month. And there's a couple of sessions, sometimes even more than that each month. So I invite you to check that out if you're a graduate from our program. At the moment, we have over 200 graduates. We also have many people who join us for continuing education. This is this all of this can be done online and or just for knowledge, just for growth, for learning. If you are interested in yoga or yoga philosophy and yoga on and off the mat, this would be the program for you. So go on nataliekrad.com and then go onto the members portal and you will see if you scroll down the different options that you have but with that you can get a recording of the zoom session even if you can't attend it live and besides that once you're in that portal I offer many healing techniques and meditations and sometimes even Q&As and get togethers with our community our community is very much so growing we have people all over the country so you can check it out and see if you want to stay connected on that level. I consider that a mastermind program, mentorship program. So I invite you to join it. The few people who have joined it thus far, because it's all been very much word of mouth, very organic. Many of the members are people in the training school or that have gone through the training school. And then we have other people that was just really word of mouth. I haven't even announce this really on the podcast that often. Quite frankly, it's just, I forget. There's so many different things going on. But the reason why I did this program is because I really wanted to be available to all of you on that level. So that if you don't want to book a private with me, or you can't do a 300 hour, 200 hour yoga teacher training, you could, we could still connect. I love it. I myself am a member of a few of those mastermind groups that I meet online on Zoom with my teachers and my community. So I invite you to join our community. Without further ado, enjoy Mr. Joshua Stevens. Welcome to Life on Earth, The Peace Project, a podcast that teaches you how to connect with the divine and transform darkness into light through topics from yoga to nature and ultimately, love. Join your host, Natalie Kwa, to celebrate and encourage diversity, peace, and global equality, one earthling at a time. Well, hello, hello, everyone. I am your host, Natalie Kwa. Welcome to Life on Earth podcast. I have the incredible honor to host Joshua Stevens today. Hello. Hi, Natalie. Thanks so much for having me on. It's quite an honor. Well, I am very appreciative and honored and excited to have you here. So thank you for being on the show. And I am excited for us to dive into our conversation and share with our listeners because we have a wonderful community. It's extraordinary, for sure. Yeah. So you're an athlete? Yes. Yeah, a professional Mountain Ultra Trail Runner based in Estes Park, Colorado. Mountain Ultra Trail Runner. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> that sounds like it's so cool. I mean, it sounds like you do a lot with like, you know, running and, and you said climbing and can you explain it yeah. if somebody doesn't know what that is? Sure. Well, it sounds a whole lot more important than it is. I'm really just a kid who gets to run around the <laughs> woods for a living. 
So it's essentially, you know, my focus areas are on long distance endurance running. Generally, anything that exceeds 26.2 miles or marathon distance is loosely referred to as ultra running. And I run on a variety of different terrain and a variety of different environments. So I live in the mountains. I'm blessed to live, you know, high up in the uh, Colorado Rocky Mountains in northern Colorado. Mm-hmm. But I've run all over to include across Death Valley and on the East Coast and down Texas. And then I'm, you know, in, in the last few years, I've tried to develop my portfolio as an alpinist by becoming a little bit more multidisciplined. I'm kind of now a one trick pony, like I'm a, an adequate runner. But I am trying to develop my skills as a climber, and I'm surrounded by some of the world's very best. Uh, I think Tommy Caldwell, uh, who's famous from the movie The Dawn Wall and his book The Push, grew up here, and he's just one of a, a number of really amazing climbers in town. Okay, so I love Colorado. I spend a lot of time there and intend to continue because it's so awesome. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, so... I would love to share your story. I've heard your story before, and I don't know however much you want to share with, you know, life on earth today, but maybe we can backtrack before you became an athlete and tell us a little bit about who you are and like what happened before, what were you doing? I know you were in the army and, you know, and all that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I hope I don't disappoint Pretty standard upbringing, middle class. Uh, I grew up on the coast of Maine, and my family, going back several generations, were shipbuilders. And so that was the environment I grew up in. And you know, to include step siblings and a half uh, sister, and I, I was the oldest of six, and a in a pretty large family. Going through school, you know, I was again, you know, pretty vanilla. Nothing. Uh, you know, I participated in sports and it was just okay and academically was okay and, and had really never found my passion or found something that uh, excited me. And I'd like to say that this was by some kind of grand design or some understanding of string theory, but I joined the army in 1989 when I was in high school and I listed and, and really for no other reason, Natalie, than you know, typical of, of young men trying to find purpose or, or meeting. <laughs> I just followed what a couple of my friends did. <laughs> so a couple yeah. of my friends signed up and I said, well, you know, hell, that sounds pretty neat. There's, I got, there's gotta be something beyond this, this kind of little coastal main world that I, I grew up in. And How old were you? Well, when I first started talking about it and getting ready to sign, I think I was pretty young now. I think I was like 17. Okay. And there was something called the delayed entry program. Like I enlisted or I signed a contract and then I went to basic training as a young infantry soldier the following year, much to my mother's dismay. I still remember her crying quite a bit. Oh, <laughs> and- I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's an amazing lady. But yeah. I did that and I started as a, I mean, really the lowest possible rank that you could come in at. And the army, I think for some reason, felt like I wasn't reaching my potential as an infantry private. So they gave me the opportunity to go to university and a program called Green to Gold, where I joined ROTC. And four years later, when I finished my undergraduate work, I was commissioned as a young second lieutenant in the infantry. 
And the next 20 years from there, I spent most of my time at Fort Bragg, but I served in initially a number of infantry units like the 10th Mountain Division, 82nd Airborne Division. And then I kind of transitioned into a host of different Army Special Operations forces, um, first off with the Rangers and, and then a couple of units at Fort Bragg. And that's where, you know, that's where I retired. And after 24 years total, and I had risen to the rank of lieutenant colonel by the time I retired. Wow, that's pretty impressive. And I know you you went through a lot and learned a lot and grew a lot. And, you know, and like you said, started from a very low and climbed and ended like that. That's so cool. I mean, you know, it takes a lot and a lot of strength. Mind, I think mind, body, everything, you know? Yeah. No, I love that you say that. I think... Focus too. Yeah. I think if I'd experienced, and this definitely comes into play with my current, you know, profession and livelihood as a, as a runner, Natalie, I think I never had anything given to me. I never had anyone just take care of all my needs. I had to learn in my family to be pretty self-sufficient and to be pretty tough. Mm -hmm. And because I struggled so much when I was young, I think it just made me, when I found what my passion was, and at that time, you know, for a quarter of a century, it was the army, I threw everything I had into it. And I still look back now some, you know, five years after I retired, going on six, that I'm so blessed and I'm so privileged and fortunate to have had all those experiences. And and we'll touch on some of, you know, the darker, more difficult stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, what were some of the, like, challenges, top challenges that you had during, you know, your experience? I'm sure you were abroad a lot and you saw a lot of things. Well, this is, you know, this is always, always a downer to talk about mortality, Mm -hmm. but I grew up in a fairly idyllic kind of Norman Rockwell world, like literally on the coast of Maine. And and while my dad, and it was tough, my mom was a hard worker and all that. I mean, I, I always had everything I needed and it was a pretty good life, but I really never had experienced loss outside of, you know, my grandparents. And those are things that, you know, by the time you're in your late teens, early twenties, uh-huh. you kind of expect that stuff to happen. But right. I was 25, I think, Natalie, when the first kid I was responsible for got killed uh-huh. in a training accident. A wow. young man, yeah, a young, young ranger named... Greg Belletti. Was that overseas? Who, no, that was in a that was in Here? a training. Yeah, it was oh. in Savannah in Savannah Georgia, outside Savannah Georgia. He uh, okay. he drowned on mm-hmm. a um, on a river crossing problem set that we were doing. But that's the first time I ever had to look at parents in the eyes yeah. and tell them that you know I think I was searching for how to reconcile that myself. Like, what could I have done differently? Was, you know, I'm ultimately responsible for him. You know, it was an accident. It was, it wasn't any, being in the Rangers is tough business. Training in that environment is tough. Fatalities happen, but that's the first time it had ever happened to me. Oh yeah. And I remember looking at his mom Uh and trying to give her some peace. And I, I think I said, if you guys need to blame somebody, blame me. And I don't know why, I felt compelled to say that. I think I've always been a bit of a people pleaser and I wanted to carry that pain for her. Uh-huh. And that is something that was my 
first experience with that, Natalie. And unfortunately and sadly, I had to do it a whole bunch of more times. You know, yeah. Many, I mean, many I, more times. I think one thing is the theory of knowing that something like that happens in an environment like that, even by watching movies and, you know, or even when you sign up to be in the army. And then there's the reality that when that actually happens, like you said, even your first time, you're like, whoa, this is very real. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. not like, it's, I think the theory <laughs> and the reality, it's like, there's a big jump. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't yeah. get any more real, right? I mean, yeah, but you're here and then you're not. Yeah. And that's a very binary perspective. And yeah, no, I, I agree. But it forced me to grow up really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine. Because you were young back then, right? Just, I felt like a kid. You know, tw- now at 49, I look back at 25, I, I didn't know anything. <laughs> I thought I did. You know, I thought I knew yeah. everything. Right? Yeah. I, I, I thought you, you think you've got the world figured out. But For sure. Yeah, but all I've, all I've learned is I think I know, I recognize I know less and less about the world as the universe. I know. <laughs> but yeah, it definitely gave me, like, at 25, it prepared me for kind of the horrors that I had to deal with in combat in Iraq, in Afghanistan through the 2000s, my own later severe injuries from roadside bombs. And then yeah, I was going to say, my, do you mind yeah. sharing? No, no, it's yeah. But to kind of put that connective tissue there at 25, I grew up real quick. And then, you know, later I started my own family and kind of get promoted and it was moving along on a regular, you know, trajectory. Mm-hmm. And then 9-11 occurred. Mm-hmm. And throughout the 90s, I, you know, I've been globally deployed and there were little hot spots and things around that we worked on. But the world changed entirely on, on 9-11. And mm-hmm. subsequently in my profession, everything changed and, and would forever remain altered. The next 10 years is really a blur, multiple combat deployments. And the first time I myself was wounded was on at the end of January 2005 in a city called Beji in northern Saladin province. Uh, the provincial capital is, is Tikrit. That's where Saddam Hussein and his family had come from. It was a hotly contested area. And that was the first time... I was ever directly exposed to a roadside bomb and after our vehicles hit. And, uh, How did several, that happen? It was, a, it was actually, You were in a car? Yeah, it was in a uh, up-armored Humvee. Mm-hmm. And we were on a patrol, which was fairly uncommon because it was during the day. And the mm-hmm. unit I worked in did most of its work at night. And so that was one of the things I recall. And we were driving along a road called East-West Road. And it was notorious for having roadside bombs placed in it by uh, Sunni rejectionists or what later became Al-Qaeda in Iraq and eventually ISIS. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was, uh, I was behind the driver and the, one of my peers who was in the front troop commander seat up on the front passenger side was telling me about how they had just been hit, you know, a week before and, and the crater was still there. And, and I looked at it and I literally looked into it and it had put another bomb in the same damn hole. Oh, man. It detonated. And, and so it, it's uh, like, it, does it happen so fast that you don't even know? Do you kind of like disassociate or you just like you're out immediately? Or do you know that, oh, my God, this is happening? 
That's a great question. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, you know, you're cognizant of it occurring. You're always aware that it's the potential, the potential exists. That's the first time it had ever happened to me directly. Like I'd seen these things in spaces we were fighting, but it was the first time I ever got smacked like mm-hmm. straight on. So I remember the flash. That's very vivid. So this, you know, the bright colors and okay. then there's this kind of latency or this dissonance where you don't hear anything mm-hmm. because it's so loud. And, you know, I have very limited hearing on my left side because that's seemingly where I always got hit. I was on the left side, but I do remember it wounding the gunner who's exposed kind of the top pretty badly and it destroyed his weapon system and it knocked the driver out. And the most serious part of the injury came, I got very lucky with the shrapnel penetrated the vehicle. It went, a very large piece went probably about a half an inch in front of me and my body armor, but it knocked the driver out and the vehicle lurched dramatically to the left. And uh, here's some beautiful irony. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers was building a steel, excuse me, a concrete reinforced irrigation ditch for the Iraqi people. Uh-huh. It was about eight, it was very deep, like eight feet deep, uh-huh. all concrete. Our vehicle then shot over the road and, and directly down into that. Oh God! And I was thrown from the back of the vehicle in between the two front seats, where there's a a series of radio systems, Natalie. So there's a SATCOM and FM and UHF and a series of just very hard, you know, metal composite yeah. uh, just radios. Like, just like we see in the movies. Yeah, it, very <laughs> much. Hey, very much. And yeah. I hit that directly and my neck mm. was was uh, severely compromised. Oh, that wow. would be the first time that I had a broken neck. Whoa. Okay. Yeah, that's serious. Mm, yeah, wasn't great. Yeah, um, thank you for sharing that because I, I always wondered, you know, that moment when somebody's going through that and you you do survive, like if you, what kind of recollection you have years yeah. later, you know, like yeah. for you, this is over what, 20 years ago? So what, uh, about 15 years ago? Yeah, 15 yeah. years ago, but still yeah. a long time, you know, like yeah. over yeah. 10 years, it's but it's interesting yeah. how you describe it, and it feels like you still have this very present imagery of it, you know. Yeah, it's strange. Yeah, the things that you do recall. Some, you know, memory is a tricky thing. I remember this great podcast from Sean Lennon, son of John and Yoko. Mm-hmm. He was on Mark Marin's WTF podcast. He was five, I think, when his dad was killed. Mm. And they talk about, he talks about memories being tricky and that you're not actually remembering the event. You're remembering variations of the way that that's played out in your head. In your head. Yeah. Right. You know, so in combat, it's always sticky business because particularly with heavy trauma, how much of what you're remembering is being muted just so you can live with it. Like it's, is it worse than I thought? Was it not as bad as I thought? There were certain moments immediately after that I remember with vivid clarity. Yeah. To touch, taste, different sensations. And then there are other parts that I think, you know, after a number of years of therapy when I retired, I think my body just my mind mutes just to protect me from some of the awfulness. I mean I'm just speculating, yeah. but Well, I, I, mean, I mean to me that makes that would make sense because I feel 
the connection of the body, the mind, the spirit, and, and everything. It's its own sort of entity and planet that it's very intelligent in a way, you know, and it right. carries yeah. us through this life as it needs to, letting you, yeah. re- allowing you to remember some things and blocking some others that perhaps that happens to everyone on multiple levels, you know? Sure. Yeah. But those yeah, it doesn't, things it doesn't, have, doesn't have to be combat. No, I think it's our body, you know, body, mind, and spirit, it's capacity to be self-sufficient and to live, to want to live is remarkable. The number of adaptations I think that it, it goes through to, you know, either to protect you from trauma or to make sure you survive experiences. And again, yeah. I get a little like my experiences, I don't think are any more traumatic than anyone else's. They're unique in that not many people well, go to war. Exactly. But, I mean, we can say they're pretty radical in a way. You know what I mean? Sure. Like. <laughs> yeah. But I'm also always a little cautious because I don't like our listeners or when I'm when mm-hmm. I have the privilege of talking to you and other friends that I don't ever want to have some person get up tomorrow morning and go, well, what do I have to feel bad about or sad or why am I depressed? I didn't do anything like Joshua did. And that's that's not at all. Trauma is trauma. It doesn't matter what the genesis of it is, right? Like I have a unique experience, but if you have, you know, there are people who were abused sexually or emotionally or were in awful car accidents or any number of things, that, mm-hmm. that trauma is all real. And what I hope to convey is that no matter how awful it is, no matter how soul-breaking it is, you can come back from it. You can live with a high quality of life and find peace and happiness. And you should never compare in a way where you're not giving yourself credit by saying, well, my trauma isn't as bad as his or hers. Uh, What you carry is what you carry. And my story, and we'll get into some of the darker stuff that was yet to come, my story is, I hope, just a beacon or a lighthouse that said, like, I wanted to kill myself. I mean, I was in a very, very bad place, and you can come back from it, and you can live in an extraordinary life. And you are, and you are, you know, I mean, I follow you on Instagram and it's very inspiring to see your photos and the things you have to say, your optimism, you're very positive, you know, it's just, you have a light about you and that's beautiful. Well, thank you. You're making me blush because I think the same, I think the same of you. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I don't want to jump too far ahead with what I'm going to say now, but one thing that I was just really feeling when you were speaking about all this is that even what you do now, right, the athlete that you are and, and the endurances, and I know you've done some pretty extreme competitions and, you know, races and stuff, so it's still kind of very much like sort of that kind of prepped you for what you're doing now too. Cause in a way, even though of course you're not at war anymore, you're, you know, you're doing this beautiful thing, but you're very good with endurance. You're very good with carrying things through. I think I was listening about a podcast with you that you were talking 
how you, I think you were like throwing up in this race that was super <laughs> yeah. like radical, yeah. you know, super extreme, which we can talk about for, in a bit. But yeah, like I said, I don't want to jump too far, but you know, and then you went back and did it and finished. I think that what I'm trying to say is that this foundation sort of laid out your, you know, yeah. you still have this capacity to endure a lot, which is that to me is also very admirable because not all of us have that, you know? Like it's wow. very easy to like want to give up sometimes, no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, let's. I th- I think, <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No. Go ahead. No. No. I, yeah. Because we'll catch up to that. Yeah. That's, we'll catch that up was, to that. Uh, but that was bad water running across mm-hmm. Death Valley this yeah, year. Yeah. Bad water. Exactly. Yeah. But I love is the context because you did all this stuff is interconnected and it all happens mm-hmm. in spiral progression and. Just to put context on that, because it's really insightful yeah. that you, that you bring that up, is my experiences in the army when it got tough came from the difficulties I experienced as a kid in Maine. So when I went through the U.S. Army's Ranger School back in the early '90s, it used to be four phases. There was a, a phase in Fort Benning, Georgia, and then you would go to uh, a desert phase out in White Sands, New Mexico, and then a mountain phase in Dahlonega, Georgia. And finally, the swamp phase in Florida. And it's a very, very tough school. The year after I went through, five Ranger students died of hyperthermia in one night. In my class, the prior year, it started with, you know, 380-something soldiers. And I think 35 of us went straight through. Only 35 of us went through without recycling any phases. But when that was tough, and I remember... I remember one morning in particular in Georgia, in Dahlonega, Georgia, in like February in the mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, and my toes were so frozen, my feet hurt so bad, Natalie, I literally wanted to cry. As a grown man in ranger school, I literally was sitting on my knees, staring up at the sky, just begging the sun to come out so I could get warm. But I drew on the times that my old man when spring break in high school would come around in Maine and all my friends would go, you know, and do fun things in warm places, I, I had to go down to the shipyard uh-huh. and work with grown men and, you know, and carry uh-huh. a 30 pound power sander on, on the coast of Maine in February. So that day in Dahlonega, Georgia, when I'm sure a number of people had just quit that day, I somehow just made it to the next hour and then the sun came out and it was okay. And, and when I, you talk about the running I do now, I can promise you that those times where I just want to shut down or I just don't want to do it anymore, I think back to a time where I was wounded in combat or scared to death or trying to protect a friend. And and I hope that I draw all the experiences. And I hope when you and I are pals 20 years from now, we're talking about it, that there's something else then that I've drawn from now. So it's just really insightful that you bring that up because there's nothing I do now that occurs in a vacuum. Everything is comes from something that's happened to me before. Do you feel like, what is this thing inside you? Even like going back to so young that you're saying, like, do you feel like it's a discipline? Do you feel like it's courage? Like, what is this thing that, you know, that it's kind of like this internal fire that you've always had? Uh, That's the best (laughs) question. That's the best question anyone's ever asked. That's serious. Because it's insecurity. It's insecurity. I was always too little or not fast enough or not good looking enough or not smart enough. Or every time somebody 
made me feel like I wasn't good enough has gotten me to where I am today. And although I am generally very positive and very optimistic, I have a hard edge in me that if I feel like you insult me or you slight me, I will make it my life's mission to beat you in a race or <laughs> to do something hard. Like, you know, that's, yeah. that's where it comes from is like all those times, you know, when I couldn't make a left-handed layup on the playground and, and didn't, you know, and got picked last for the basketball team. Like I didn't get good at anything until I found the army. And then all of a sudden I became pretty good at stuff, but still, I'm, I'm still Nelly, that little kid. You have then, all these accomplishments then, now. I mean, pretty yeah. hardcore accomplishments. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yeah. So, okay. So back in the army, you break your neck. Cause I just want to go through that. And then what else do you want to share? Like I know, Okay, now sure. is there any other eventful things? Sure. Yeah, it's so I was <laughs> unfortunately became pretty prolific at getting blown up. So it happened to me four times. Yeah, uh, I mean, I combat. heard that. Whoa, that's crazy, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, whoa, yeah. that's a lot. Yeah, people people stopped wanting to be in my vehicle. <laughs> so, but but everything is in context, right? So I lost a lot of friends over there. I have colleagues who lost limbs or who were maimed. Seriously, I, you know, I earned a Purple Heart. I was wounded in combat. I have a lot of things that came from that. But my natural optimism, my natural positivity always makes me see that through the lens of being blessed. I'm here talking to you today. I live in this beautiful I am so blessed to have this house I'm in, where I live, and I get to run outside. So those are four awful experiences, but I'm not here without those. So my neck, you know, t two major compromises, which subsequently turned into two neurosurgeon interventions, in the first at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, and then the, the last one at Womack Army Medical Center at Fort Bragg. But yeah, those were the end results. And that is also where my next big life challenge, you know, dependency on opioids came from. I was... Uh, yeah. How did that happen? I mean, I know you're prescribed, yeah. right? But then how... Yes, ma'am. So, so many people too, that's another thing that's happening to so many people. So how yeah. does one go from, you know, having a medical condition to becoming addicted to that medicine? Yeah. So, and I was such a square, I was such a straight edge guy. I'd never, I'd never had a drug. I'd never done a drug until I was 37 when I was the first time a synthetic opioid was injected into me for pain management. That uh -huh. was, excuse me, I was 35. So in 2005 and, you know, I drank socially, but it was, yeah, I'd never, yeah, I, yeah, I was never, I was just such a, a straight edge kid. And this was for the neck or for the spine? Yeah, that's for the spine, for, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. had to do with the neck too, the yeah. whole spine, okay. Now, this is why I'm so passionate, particularly about the opioid crisis mm -hmm. in our country. It's, And this is why opioids are such a nefarious drug. So yeah, they do what they're supposed to, which is if you're severely injured, it is going to mute that physical pain. But I believe now, again, after years of therapy and, you know, years of introspection and, and growth, 
and relapses and coming back and finally getting that sorted out. But it can go back to when that young kid drowned in the 90s. I got ejected on the battlefield, Natalie, and all of a sudden I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel all that emotional trauma, all of that weight I'd been carrying around with me as a commander in the military. And I want to, this is really important because this is why I believe so many people are abusing opioids today. And it comes from a host of different traumas. But for me, I was living every single day at that time in the war thinking if I lost a soldier or soldiers under my watch had been killed, what could I have done differently? Should I have said, no, we don't have enough intel. We're not going to do that mission. Should I have said go right instead of left? I would stay up at night thinking if I had done something differently, if I'd been better, that wife would still have a husband. That daughter mm. would still have a dad. What I can tell you is you don't ever want to live with that. And the minute I got injected with opioids, I didn't feel that anymore. And so while so my- it was also an emotional pain. As yeah, well as a physical. That's where my addiction came from. I believe I became dependent, Natalie, the first time I took it, not because of a moral failing or an inability to just stop using it. I took it because I just didn't want to feel anymore. And then I spent the next six years not feeling anything. So then when they injected that or when you take that, that mm-hmm. went completely went away. Like it would be like numb. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. you know, it's the way that the drug works is it's, you know, it's, it gives you kind of this euphoric feeling and yeah, it's good, but you just it's all there. That's the monster though. It never goes away. And that's That's like a bandage. Yeah, it's that's that's where the real work comes in when you're getting clean, you're coming off that stuff because so all of a sudden So 6 years of that. Well, that's yeah. that's a lot. Yeah. That's yeah, a lot. Progressively so was, more and more. Yeah. How was that time in your life? I mean, is, is that like... Oh, it was a, you know, pardon my language. It was a shit show. Yeah. I mean, it was, you can keep it together for a long time. And for many years, people had no idea, even the closest people. To, so you're like, it, you're like functional, super functional. Yeah. Yeah. You can be highly functional. Yeah. Yeah. But eventually it's all good until it's not. Uh-huh. And then w- when the wheels came off, you know, so ultimately the toll of the war and my post-traumatic stress disorder, my traumatic brain injury and my abuse, my substance use disorder, it cost me two marriages and, you know, some really awful dark times, you know, the dark night of the soul. Yeah, I, it, really that last year. You went there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I thoroughly researched it. I was, yeah, yeah I was using everything. And it gets to a point where, again, you built up such a tolerance that it takes more and more and more to not feel. And then, you know, the last bit, the last year or so, then you're just taking drugs not to be sick. You know, then you're taking them just not to want to kill yourself. Like it's, yeah, it was without a doubt, the hardest thing I've ever done yeah, by, I, I, by comparison running or, or yeah. being in combat or it was I was going to say, I feel like this really was your biggest battle. This was the real like war, you know what I mean? Yes. In a sense. Yeah. And also no, right. in a way your sacred moment, because you took it 
eventually, and you turned your life around, which is, it takes that, you talked about the dark night of the soul, but there's also that thing of your sacred moment, you know, when you realize that, okay, what am I going to, how am I going to get out of this? And what am I going to do next? And then it's work. It doesn't happen overnight, but you have to, at some point, do it, make a decision, go through it and get out on the other side. And then I, you know, I think life, you're, Every day we're like, you know, we have to win our mornings, win our days. And I don't know for you, but for me, it's like meditation and, you know, the things I do maybe for you is climbing and running. I mean, it's kind of like we have to continuously take care of of us, you know. It's not like a got there check because there's challenges, (laughs) you know what I mean? Every day for the rest of our lives. I love that. I love that term, winning your mornings. (laughs) <laughs> no it's yeah it's great no it's well, I feel like yeah. rituals really help and you know sure. all the things that you everybody has their self-care programs mental care emotional care but these are things that we have to deal with um every day you know yeah. to continue to be a better version of ourselves like podcasts like this you coming on air and speaking and sharing your experience it's going to lighten up a lot of people's lives too, because it's an inspiration to hear you speak th- this way. Well, thank you. And, and likewise, you've given me a gift today with, again, I will never forget that term winning your mornings or winning your <laughs> afternoon. It's like, because what I want to share with our friends who are listening is that there's never a peak. Like, just because I've arrived to where I'm at now doesn't mean my life is devoid of conflict and challenges. I still have, you know, three children that I, I work to make sure are taken care of. And as a parent, you, you know, you feel their pains and disappointments and challenges. I, I'm still, you know, a human. So when I go through, you know, I'm an overly Irish romantic type guy. So every time I go through a breakup, like everyone goes through in their life, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's devastating. And be- yeah. just because I have a nice house <laughs> or I'm a good runner, like doesn't mean that I don't feel those things or you know, some days I have a friend here in town who read one of my posts and said, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. She's like, well, it just seemed like you were having a hard day. And I'm like, it's, I'm like, yeah, girl, I, some days mm-hmm. I'm sad. Some days yeah. I'm sad. It, it doesn't have to be any one thing. And I don't want people who follow me on social media to think that. That's never the day, case. I, I, yeah, yeah. I'm winning every day. Now, some, some days I'm just sad and, yeah. you know, and, and I have to process that. And well, uh, I love that you say that because, you know, this is a re that's the reality. That's real. You know, yeah. there's sadness, there's happy, and there's also neutral equanimity. And, right. and that's me too. You know, there's yeah. days that I'm just sad and it's just, these are natural human emotions and they'll come up and they'll leave and we need yeah. to be okay and honor that as much as we honor and we all want to be, you know, happy, happy. But you can't you can't live in this state of like euphoria 24-7. It's just exactly. not real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've been one of my great guides that I follow. Thank you. You know, you and Rich yeah. Roll. And, and yeah. I love that you had John Joseph on there. And I know. It, he's amazing it, too. He is amazing. It's But through... Friends like you guys and people close to me in my life, I've gotten better at just feeling the feels. And you said honor it. Like, because I'm so optimistic and positive, because I always want to be 
a light for other people, I sometimes cheat myself of that cleansing experience by just ignoring, like, I'm upset today. Someone hurt my feelings or I have, I'm having a conflict with someone. Now I just let it happen. And that, I mean, I, I wish I could say something more profound because that sounds really ethereal. But now I stop and I just stay in that place and I feel it until I process it naturally. That's not always easy. You know, it's yeah. feeling sad or upset is, is not fun, but I process it rather than compartmentalize it, which invariably comes back and creates problems, you know, hidden resentments and angers and hurts. I try to just work through it now. And again, you're one of the people from afar yeah. who just that has helped me do that. Well, I appreciate you saying that, but also I feel like I'm learning hearing you speak. And it's also, you know, the fact that you are a man and you're saying that you just don't compartmentalize that you feel you go through it. It's quite amazing too, because a lot of, for some reason, a lot of men don't want to go there. You know, right. it's better to just put it in a drawer and put it aside and let's just kind of numb it. However, and even, yeah. even if it's not drugs, yeah. you know, one can numb things going to the gym too much or mm -hmm. running too much or whatever. Yeah. So you yeah. have to be conscious and mindful to live this kind of life that you are yeah. now doing yeah. it and you it sounds like you are offering this to your own self like you're like i'm gonna really step up in my yeah. life on all levels i have to i have to because i have so much improvement there's so much room for growth that i don't feel and i'm not sure which theological modality this would be attributed to maybe it's hinduism but the but you can correct me if i'm wrong but basically the concept of reincarnation is I think one of the ways that I've handled what seems, you know, having grown up with a strong Christian background and then witnessing everything I did in the military, I vacillated wildly and became, I just thought that everything was chaos theory and there was no purpose and it was all unfair. And why was some guy who I felt was a much better man and a much better dad and a much better husband, why, would, why should he get killed? while I'm still here. And that's you know, the survivor's guilt stuff. But I believe that I have a prescribed time on this planet and that I have so much more work to do before my time is called off of it. So I dispense with all the traditional bullshit. And I grew <laughs> up in a really very kind of masculine environment and uh -huh. I was in the army and yeah yeah I I cry I feel bad I tell people that I love them I hug people I <laughs> I smile a lot because that's my gift and that's the tool that I'm using to try to figure out what I have to do to grow for the rest of my time here on this plane like I know I've got a lot of, of work to do, Natalie. And, oh, for sure. And, yeah. and you know, I was going to ask you, you brought it up, but has it crossed your mind? I'm sure it has. Like, but how, you know, how many times you have come close to dying, right? To death. Yeah. And yet yeah. you are, you survived all yeah. of those times. Like, isn't that also you're like, whoa, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, there's a purpose, you know, and I'm not, I am not aligned specifically with any one man constructed theology. Mm -hmm. I do believe that there 
is something beyond this. And I have to, I have to believe that the reason that those times when I was that close to seeing the flowing robes of God, when I was on the precipice of mortality, that I am here because of work I am expected to do, not only for others, but for myself. Otherwise, it's nihilism. What is the point? What is the yeah. point of that suffering? That you know, It's not there just to suffer. And that's what gets me up you know, every day. So, and it's really impressive. I have a question here for you, but it's really impressive that you go from, you know, enduring all this pain and these multiple bombs, whatever happened, and now you're doing what you do professionally as a professional athlete. It's so, you know, it's a lot for your body. Like you're still using your body so much. So somehow you have overcome that. And so, you know, we talked about the opium. So my question is, because I have a few people who are listening, who listen to this podcast that are dealing with some very intense chronic pains. And some of it has to do even with back surgery and stuff like that. And I wanted to ask you, you know, when you talk about the neck, that sounds so crazy. I mean, that I'm a yoga teacher as well. And like, I know how important the neck, the spine is. How do you, when you felt that, how do you deal with that level of pain? And like, how do you actually even like get out of it? And and, and you're like, and, and I'm going to become, not only am I going to get out of it, but I'm going to become an athlete. Yeah. <laughs> like, how <laughs> do you do that? You know, what kind of process is that? Like if somebody's going through some really crazy pains in their body and they feel like they want to give up. What do you have to tell them? Yeah. Wow. Part of it is acceptance. Mm -hmm. We uh, live in a society where, you know, really go back to post world war two and where convenience and comfort became central, whether it was TV dinners or cars or, lounge chair like we created a society where it seemed like the goal is to never feel discomfort or to never be in pain and i think it's not a tremendous leap to then look at medical practicing and say that well-meaning medical professionals want to alleviate people's pain i mean that's one of the reasons they get into that line of work for me i did everything i could in my power to only feel good, you know, for those six years. And this sounds so tangential. This is the only your nerdy music <laughs> listeners will get this. One of my favorite bands of all time is this Australian band called Silverchair. And they became really big when they were really young in the 90s. But their lead singers is just incredible guitar player and writer named Daniel Johns. And he as a man faced anorexia when he was young. And he was doing that because he became really famous and he felt like everyone controlled his life. And the only thing he had control of was food. And then he, you know, he ended up on a lot of antidepressants and and those things. And around 2001, they wrote an album called Diorama. And where that came from, Natalie, was he stopped taking all those antidepressants. And all of a sudden he began to feel everything. For me, with my pain, I created this boogeyman that the pain was so overwhelming. If I wasn't on drugs, then I wouldn't be able to handle it. And what I found is I absolutely can handle it. I had to accept a new normal. And yeah, it's uncomfortable at times. 
yes, it hurts at times, but I am capable of processing that. I am capable of accepting it and being in the moment and then transcending it. I don't use any medications. I don't. You still have pain sometimes? Sure. In your body? Yeah, sure. If it's really cold, those Mm -hmm. are tough days because of the fusions in my neck and I had some metal in there for a while. And But what I did as I, um, oh, conquering it sounds so arrogant. I didn't let it own me. And I realized. No, this is so smart what you're saying. Well, I realized that as an addict in particular, you become really proficient at lying to yourself. And so you create this narrative that says, I can't function without this. But you absolutely can. And it's when I used to do work down at Boulder Running Company, and I'm in my you know, late 40s, and I'd have some 30-year-old guy come in and be like, well, I can't run anymore because my knees are destroyed. And, you know, I don't know, and I'm not going to, if they don't know who I am, and who cares? They don't know what my story is. Mm-hmm. But I want to say, look, that's nonsense. You absolutely can run. If your knees hurt, then there's a variety of biomechanical explanations for that. Mm-hmm. But for me, you talk about yoga. For me, it was really radically changing first my diet. I became plant-based. Secondly, was trying to incorporate techniques of mindfulness and being aware of the space that I take up, but not allowing that to be the center of gravity in my life. And I found like I can give you any number of small examples, but it was by being kind and by being or attempting to be and being present and taking care of myself, then that pain wasn't the boogeyman that I had built it up to be. And that doesn't mean it goes away. And that that goes all the way back to how I started this discussion is life is painful at times. But that's the context that you don't understand true pleasure unless you, you know, you have to experience some discomfort. I'm the same guy. Now, I mean, I, I structurally am the same guy, but I don't behave or think of myself as a guy who had his neck broken twice. I mean, that's right. I've, I've moved beyond that. Yeah. And that's like a, such a beautiful metaphor, you know, that at times there's going to be discomfort at times there's going to be pain, whether it's physical right. or whatever in life. Right. Yeah. And I love that because then it's like, you're not completely identified with that pain you know, whichever pain that is, but it's just something that's there and it's at times. Yeah. And that's yeah, we, awesome. <laughs> we create these prisons. And when we use terms like acute versus chronic or, you know, breaks, fracture, like words mean things. And if yes. you create a story in your head, then eventually your reality becomes a reflection of that narrative. And I had to stop. For me, it was getting off of opioids. That that changed the game because I had to stop lying to myself. I had to stop saying, I need this because I'm in pain. I needed it because I didn't want to feel. I needed it because I wanted an excuse to just fucking quit. I needed it because I couldn't handle human relationships. Well, you wanted, you wanted to disassociate, like you wanted to just kind of, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Which is understandable. I mean, you know, sure. Yeah. yeah. I am so empathetic to people in that space and I love each and every one of them. And I wish 
I could make all that pain go away, but I'm not being a good friend or, or mentor or partner if I'm not giving the truth, which is you have to own your narrative and you can't allow that narrative to just be an excuse for not changing the way you're at. Because if you really want growth and you really want to achieve your full potential, you can't do what I did for a while, which was just make up a story and then stick to it because it was just too hard to change how I was living my life. But at the end of the day, Natalie, I just, at that time, lacked the courage and the fortitude to do it. And thank God, I finally found a way out of that space. Oh, yeah. You know, and I also think it's so interesting how you said words are so powerful. They do mean things and and changing chronic to acute or things like that. Because I had a back pain, a lower back sacrum thing for, you know, a couple of years and on and off, it will still come up. Right. But when I was dealing with the thick of it and I was going to some people to check it out and see what I could do to improve it, a lot of times people started labeling me with the chronic thing, you know, they say, oh, you have this chronic lower back pain. And I remember the first time I heard that and it was like from a doctor or something, I was like, it just hit me really wrong because I just felt like, wait a minute, let me even look up that word. That's just how I am. You know, it's like, I looked it up in the dictionary and I was just like, then that means this is like with me. Yeah. Forever. And it's been there for, and it's just like, it just felt really uncomfortable to see it that way. You know, it becomes a shadow. And, and yeah. And when there was a moment that I identified with it, I believe it was like, you know, a couple of months or three months, I was like, I started saying that to people. I said, I have this chronic pain. And then that's the yep. time in my life that I was in the most pain. Right. You know, and then eventually when I was like, no, this is just something that happened because I've had a few things that happened to me too, like falling off horses and stuff. So I'm like, you know, this is just, it's just the pain and it's there, but it's going to go away. It's going to heal, you know, it's going to. Right. And it's so interesting because when I started changing my narrative around it, all of a sudden I forgot about the pain and then I didn't even have pain. Right. And it was right. like, whoa. And like sometimes yeah. now I'll have it, but I, it's totally different, my relationship with it. It's not chronic, you know? No, I love, I love it's that. It's so cool. Yeah, it's in that, you know, in some people listening will receive that gift and will put in the work and will employ positive mental visualization and will find a new level of a new normal that doesn't include pain all the time. There are going to be people who listen to us and are skeptics and think it sounds too woo-woo. But all you've got to do is follow my story and understand like I'm literally the most traditional dude from a traditional background that you can imagine who, because I dropped those walls of defense, because I became open to these different kind of mindful techniques of growth and self-love and healing that I just stopped letting pain own me. And it didn't mean it It just all went away, but it was a very dramatic shift. The paradigm shifted dramatically when I didn't wake up every morning and told myself that today is going to be another god-awful day, just full of pain and discomfort. And there was no other medical interventions that occurred with me post-2011. Uh-huh. So 
how can you account for me being structurally the same person, but doing what I do now while I had been in a hospital bed on Thanksgiving Day in 2011, being told that I would never run again. Wow. And here's the thing that you talked about with once you get that label, because one of the greatest blessings of where I'm at right now is when people contact me and say, my physician told me this, or my mom told me this. And you know, they're always very negative yeah. binary things. It's not that my surgeon wasn't smart. He's a genius. He was one of the best people that could have ever done it. They, I think we just have created a culture of comfort where they're not used to seeing someone go through that type of physical trauma and come out on the other side stronger and better for it. It was not a liability issue. It was like he'd never seen anyone go through what I'd done uh-huh. and run, much less become a professional runner at age 45. But he, you know, I'm not your average bear. So. Yeah. And I mean, we're going to get to that. But 45, that's when you started running? Well, I started, you know, I'd always kind of run. In my profession in the service, I was in some fairly elite units. And, and so having a fairly high level of physical fitness was, you know, it was a fundamental component of your job. But running, I hadn't done in a pure sense, in a way devoid of other activities since I'd been a kid. But interestingly, when I was in that hospital bed back in 2011, it was Thanksgiving. I'd been told that I wouldn't run again. And my mother-in-law at the time, at first it felt like a cruel joke. She was really well-meaning. It has changed my life. But there were two or three books that kind of came into my possession literally within like 24 to 40 hours of having that discussion with the surgeon. The first was Chris McDougall's book, Born to Run, in conjunction with Scott Jurek's first book, Eat and Run, and then shortly thereafter, Rich Roll's book, Finding Ultra. Mm. And so, you know, right, you know, you get to keep in mind, I'd literally just been told I wasn't going to run. I was like, well, this is kind of a sick joke. You just give me three running books. <laughs> but she didn't know. She didn't like, yeah. So that is what lit the fire. And that's how I became plant-based. That's how I, you know, started. Yeah, I was going to say, why did you, okay, you say that's why, but what is it about the plant-based that clicked when you said, I'm just going to try a different diet and see how that does to my body? I just wanted to, I had to change everything I was doing because where I was in my life at that point was awful. I was depressed. I was Again, I had untreated PTSD and TBI. I had only known one profession my entire life. And most people just don't, people just don't generally work in the same job for 20 or 30 or 40 years anymore. Uh-huh. That was my identity. That was all I knew that I was. And so I was then told I couldn't do it. I was then dealing with addiction a breakdown of a marriage. I was depressed. I How old liter- were you then? I was, oof, must have been 41. So I said, I have to change everything because none of this is working. None of what I am doing, my self-obsession, my you know, identifying value, 
through validation from other people and promotions and chasing money and, and status and drugs and like none of that worked. It was all a catastrophe. So it just happened to be Scott's book, Eat and Run, that became the catalyst. I said, well, I can change how I eat. And I'm going to do it completely different than how I've, I've done it before. Did, was um, it like night and day? Was it an organic? How did it happen for you? I always ask people that. that and I've heard yeah. many different ways, you know, different ways yeah. to do it. But there's also, that's another thing that even after we had John Joseph, a lot of people were asking me, well, how do I get to be plant-based? How do I do yeah. that? Like, what do you, yeah. you recommend? I mean, I, I guess it's different for everyone, but it's interesting. It was me. a transition for me. I didn't, you know, I first became pescatarian, uh-huh. you know, and then vegetarian and then vegan. And then, I, you know, then I went back and became vegetarian and maybe even pescatarian again. And, you know, in, in several years ago, uh-huh. pretty much I been, you know, just entirely plant-based. And you so feel I feel better. You feel good oh, in your yeah. body. It was life changing for me. And I always caveat these conversations with, I'm not here to try to convert someone. I think I feel, only, I feel the same way, by the way. Yeah. It came to me and it changed my life dramatically for the better. And really, my choice to be plant-based, I found, Natalie, resides in my moral and ethical compass. And I I think I'm paraphrasing Gandhi, which I'm ashamed I should be able to, to quote him directly. But it's essentially that if you become vegetarian for nutritional purposes only, it will never stick. There has to be a higher calling. And for me... It's love of the environment and wanting animals to be treated with kindness and compassion. I think regardless yeah. of what your theological background is. I feel like we we share this, you know, we, you, me, and John Joseph and Rich Roll too, even though he came to it for um, yeah. athletics first. But, right. you know, I think we share, I, I completely agree with you, but yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, having lived for a bunch of years in North Carolina, you know, and seeing, you know, these major poultry farms and hog farms. And yeah, yeah, it's so that became, you know, my calling in terms of just trying to be a good global citizen and a steward of the planet. I love that, that you're a steward (laughs) of the planet. I love that. Well, I hope I have so much more that I can do. But yeah, meeting people like, you know, you and, and Rich and Dotsie Bausch, who started Switch for Good, is another one of my passions, supporting, you know, her being a, an Olympian and first going dairy free and then finding this. It's, I think our voice becomes more powerful as it becomes a more kind and compassionate voice rather than the way that many people perceive people who choose a vegan lifestyle to be just judgmental and critical. And again, I, I have found it after treating my body like a dumpster for years. And to go back to your very poignant question before about how someone listening right now is going to be, I'm in chronic pain I need medication. You know, I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. I don't like, I'm just, I'm going to just become a prisoner of this perceived pain. I would submit to anybody that if you really 
really make an effort to live a plant-rich lifestyle first, like just be cognizant of where your food comes from, try to have a clean diet, try to, to take care of yourself, you will be shocked at how much better you feel, not only physically, but emotionally. Because I am like every one of our brothers and sisters on this planet. Like I would have never been convinced that going vegan would make me feel better, but I am an exponentially better human being because of that choice. Wow, I love that. Like you're not only healthier and, you know, an amazing athlete, but you're also a better human being because of that choice. I hope so. That's really awesome. So how does the athletics um, come in, yeah. like, to get to where you are right now? Like, and let's talk about that race that I brought up because it sounds so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah, sounds that's, that's like, the, when was that's that? That's the wild ones. When that was, was that? In, that was in July. So that's the iconic Badwater 135, which is one of the oldest ultra marathons in the world and is billed as the world's toughest race. But it's the first time, kind of the genesis of it goes back into the late 70s when the late Al Arnold, who lived in California, looked at a map and said, wow, we've got the lowest point in North America in Badwater Basin in Death Valley, which is roughly 280 feet below sea level. And if you go 135 miles across Death Valley, then you begin climbing and climbing up to Mount Whitney, which is the tallest 14,000 plus foot peak in the contiguous United States. And he said, well, you get the lowest point and the highest point within, you know, 135 miles or back then it was 145 to the very top of Mount Whitney. And over time, it became this kind of codified race where they select only 100 athletes from around the world each year to meet in Death Valley on what's forecast to be the hottest day of the year. And Death Valley is the hottest place on the planet, has the hottest recorded temperature of 134 degrees. Super so extreme. It's, it's about as extreme as it gets, for sure, <laughs> in terms of environment. And there's a lot of subjectivity in the ultra world. And some people get really worked up about what is the toughest. And all I know is... So 100 get accepted. Yeah, 100 are selected to run each year. And so I was very, very blessed and had worked pretty hard to meet the qualifications just to apply. And I endeavored to do not just the Badwater 135, which was the, the capstone race, but the Badwater brand has what's called an Ultra Cup. There are three races that occur through the year. And, and the first is in March on the East Coast on Cape Fear in North Carolina. It's a 51.4-mile race, the Badwater Cape Fear. Then at the end of April, there's a race called the Badwater Salt and Sea in Southern California. That's an 81-mile race. And then it culminates with the Badwater 135, which is a 135-mile race. And this year, or previous to 2019, I was blessed to have competed and then won. I became the Badwater Ultra Cup champion in 2019 by wow. having the fast, fastest Congratulations. Time. Oh, my Thanks. God. Yeah. Yeah, and then just for fun, I ran the Leadville 100 30 days after that. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, so it was a good year. So you but, have to train like pretty hardcore, right, for all this. I mean, yeah, I mean that's my job. That's all I do. So I what mean, is? Can days. you can you tell us? Maybe walk us through one of your like your days, like your regular sure. days of training. How does this go? Because sure. in this race, also you have you have climbing as well. Or yeah. I know you start like yeah. pretty low and you go pretty high, right, on the mountain. Yeah, yeah. That's the misnomer, and myself included. The image people have bad waters is just like straight, flat run across Death Valley. That's essentially the first 42 miles or so. That's exactly right. But there's just under 16,000 feet of cumulative vertical gain in those 135 miles. And that starts at about mile 42 with a 5,000-foot climb over you know, eight to 10 miles at the town's pass. And then there's another climb over Father Crowley Pass. And then the the last 13 miles of that race is the hardest thing I've ever done. The last 13 miles, you're climbing from Lone Pine, California, 13 miles straight of climbing up to the Whitney portals. And you finish at about 8,500 wow. feet. Yeah. And it's it's one of the most beautiful things I have ever experience i finished. can you actually be like whoa this is so beautiful as you're going oh, through it yeah, i mean can yeah. you you can because i feel like you'd be like you're like so exhausted and so much adrenaline but no yeah. you're you're like you can oh, actually appreciate everything and have a lot moment. of your boundaries are beaten down so you actually feel emotions in the most intense and pure way you could possibly imagine. I will never, ever, ever forget the beauty of watching the soft morning light paint the spires of Mount Whitney as I came into for the last four or five miles to finish that race. I finished right after sunrise the second day. Time-wise, how long is that race? It took me 32 hours. Whoa. Okay. And that's without sleep, nothing. I mean, obviously. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's yeah, that's intense. straight uh, going. <laughs> yeah. So, for an athlete, like, what are the, what do you do? We're talking about your day. Like, yeah. how's the training for that? I mean, well, I mean, I can't even imagine because I've never <laughs> been through anything like that in my life, so I have no idea. Like, what do you have to do? You know, to yeah. To I do? mean, I just basically get to explore and run. Like today, you know, for today. It was a pretty easy day, but, you know, I get up and make breakfast, or, you know, light breakfast and have coffee and kind of catch up on correspondence. And then I drove down to Boulder for my strength, basically flexibility, mobility, stability training. And then I, I came back up to Estes and went, had a friend come over and we went and scouted some climbing routes that are on my property. So just being active, scrambling around and getting ready to do some climbing and before you and I got on the phone tonight, then I just went and did a run out in the neighborhood, you know? And, okay. So you run, run every day? I generally run at least six days a week. Yeah. But I'm, I train, I'm doing something, even if it's just active recovery, I do something every day. Okay. So not even one day like of rest, just. Well, yeah, I call it like active recovery, maybe just doing a hike. You know, it's definitely not, not like intense. It's not, you know, yeah. it's not structured training, but I get a lot of sleep. I try to get, you know, eight to 10 hours a day. Ooh, I love that. You're like me. Yeah. 
And I, have, I need that. <laughs> oh, you have to. You have to. That's yeah. when our body heals. You know? Yes. And, yes. Yeah, I talk about that. this all the time. <laughs> it was the game changer for me. Like yeah. when I got into my routine and got to sleep early, you know, got up early. It was, yeah, that's really the most important. And, and there's so many studies now in every elite high-end athlete regardless of what the discipline is whether it's you know the variety of olympic sports or you know professional football players or you know gymnasts or like sleep is literally one of the most important components of any training regimen across any discipline and it was huge for me natalie huge. i'm so happy to hear that that this is coming up a lot like you're saying with the athletes and all the different disciplines because it's something that i've been teaching and talking about for literally ever because I just know that the body heals so much and it's just so therapeutic. Sleep is one right. of the best things ever, you know, yes. for anybody. So it's it's awesome to hear that people are recognizing this and even athletes and that they're, you know, paying attention and doing that. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, great. No. So what time oh. you go to bed? You know, generally, it's it depends. Like, sounds like an old man. No, I try I, no later than ten. I, if I can get, be, okay. if I can be in bed reading by nine, yeah, and then just kind of falling asleep organically from there, then I'm happy. And I try to get up around six. Okay, so you, so do you get up like naturally, or do you have an alarm? Generally, it's naturally. I've got two cats, which they like to get me up and remind me that they need to be fed. So those are uh, those are two alarm systems, but I, I think I kind of the way that my house sits and where the sun rises, I kind of it just kind of happens on its own. Like I'm I'm kind of light sensitive because of some mm -hmm. of the traumatic brain injury issues. So, but it's not like a startling you know event. Like just the light will wake me up, and I'll get up yeah. and I'll look out the window, and I'm like, well, it's time to get up. Well, reading before falling asleep so much better than watching television. Yeah, blue the blue light stuff that comes from too much screen time or television. Yeah, because I, I used to do all that. Like I'd get in, try to do my social media stuff then, or or watch TV. And that's and not have, good for you, right? It's awful. It's awful. Yeah. 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 So I try to shut all that stuff down about an hour before I go to sleep. And, okay. and if I'm, you know, reading something uh, that's, you know, intellectually challenging or heady, it, you know, it makes me just makes me tired and I fall asleep. So, yeah. And yeah. so you talked about like a light breakfast tomorrow. What does that look like for you? I like a couple of cups of coffee. So I just make coffee in my French press there or a couple of things. You know, sometimes it's just a cliff bar. Maybe it'll be a smoothie. The energy, nutritional energy company that I'm sponsored by is called Spring Energy. And one of the new products was created by this amazing girl named Kelly Wolf, who is a world-class runner. And it's this completely kind of organic, it's all natural, no preservatives, no artificial colors, but it's a 300 calorie kind of oatmeal consistency. And it comes in a little container and I'll, you know, if I'm getting ready to go do a significant effort. I want to check it out. If you send, yeah. can you send us a link so we can put absolutely. it on show notes? Yep, absolutely. I'll send it to you and you can use my name, my trail name, Tumbleweed, and you'll get a discount on all of that stuff. But yeah, that's what I'll do is generally like, you know, around 300 calories. And then I'll eat something more 
substantial, Natalie, when I get done with my workout. That's part of the recovery process as well, is getting some protein and calories back into my body. But I don't. You mean like midday or the end of the day? Like No, midday. Midday. So if I go out and do a two hour run, when I come back, I kind of have like a second breakfast that's more substantial. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you go to the gym every day? Yeah. I mean, or, you know, I run outside a lot, you know, so sometimes it's not at the gym. I live at a, you know, at a pretty high elevation. Mm-hmm. My house is at about 8,000 feet above sea level. And so winters can be tough here. So sometimes yeah. it's the gym. Like I'll have to be on a treadmill or, or we're doing a workout inside. But today, today was beautiful. I was outside for most of the day today. So if someone like they want their training or they're just simply going to the gym and, you know, whatever it is that they're doing, their physical and they wake up and they're like, ugh, you know, they're, they just don't want to do it. They're feeling lazy and they think sure. it's really hard to get on some kind of program, exercise program. What do you think like we could do to help that? Like, what do you tell yeah. yourself if there are days that you're like, I don't want to get out of bed or I don't want to do anything? Oh, like, how do you gosh. overcome that? It happens all the time, right? Yeah, it's a struggle sometimes. Rich Roll, I believe, calls it the canon of consistency. I treasure and protect how good I feel emotionally and physically because of my consistent exercise. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be extreme. It doesn't have to be so daunting that you're terrified of doing it. There are days where I don't want to get out of bed. There are definitely days where I don't want to throw my trail shoes on and go and run. But because I created a manageable amount of work that I do every day, I know that it's very selfish. I know that I will feel better when I'm done. I don't know if it's the serotonin or dopamine. Like I'm kind of a dummy, so I don't understand the biochemistry well. Yeah, but that's the drive. That's the drive is that I know I'm going to feel good. And then there are some days because of my consistency that I get up and I can't wait to go work out because I love being healthy and I love being fit and I love feeling fast and strong. But Uh when you're getting started, I would say don't, I'm not a New Year's resolution kind of person. I'm not a, like, you have to do five days a week or you're going to be a failure. I would say just do enough that you can continuously do it and grow into more and be kind to yourself. There's a delineation that's very important. My friend Courtney DeWalter, who I would argue is probably the greatest female ultra runner in the world right now. She just won the ultra runner of the year, voting for the second year in a row. Courtney doesn't have a coach. Courtney goes out and says, I'm going to run. And maybe it's just for four miles or 40 minutes, or maybe it's for four hours or like she's listening to her body. So Mm -hmm. that's something like I would say, listen to your body and do only what your body is ready to do that day. The mental thing is what you brought up. And this is something that I wish I could give this gift. I am not the fastest guy when I tow the line at races. I am not the strongest runner there, but I'm usually one of the most mentally tough. And I just call myself out on my own bullshit some days. (laughs) Like I just call myself out. I'm like, kid, 
it's this happened the other day. I was down at a place doing some climbing with these incredible climbers. They're not runners. I still had to do my running before we went out climbing. So we're down at a place called The Shelf in Southern Colorado, and it's January. In the second morning, Natalie, it was so flipping cold. I was in two extreme cold weather sleeping bags, two minus 30 rating sleeping bags because it was <laughs> it was cold. And so when my alarm went off at 645, because I had to go get my run in before everybody gathered and had our coffee, they went out to go climbing. And I'm sitting in a tent and it's so cold and I got my gear laid out. And Natalie, the last thing I wanted to do that morning was to get up and run. It was the last thing I wanted to do. But what I told myself is I sat and I said, hey, kid, check it out, man. (laughs) You got to walk the walk. Like you want to call yourself an elite mountain athlete. You want people to follow you and you want because this is what you do. Well, guess what? Put your man pants on. It's freaking <laughs> cold. And I forced myself out of that tent and the first two miles was awful. It was so cold. I was so stiff. I was feeling the effects from climbing the day before. But by the time I ended that eight mile run, the sun had come up. I'd seen the beauty of the sun coming up over the mesas in Southern Colorado. I was warmed up and there was hot coffee in the camp waiting when I got back. And I am a better person, not just a better athlete for having made that hard choice. And Rich or anybody that you talk to will say like, it's just some of those days are brutal, but you've got to call yourself out in your own bullshit. And you're a better person because of that too. Yeah. I'm as lazy as anyone. (laughs) I honestly well that sounds but what you just described sounds like if you can get through it right once you get do it it's like sounds amazing and then you're coming back to camp and people are like brewing coffee and the sun's coming out and it's like whoa that's like what makes you want to be alive you know yeah it's so cool yeah it's so cool I was so happy and I felt so content when I finished that run and I got there and yeah, you know, and then you're just around your friends and yeah. that's done. And my day is already off to a good start. But oh, I love the question because the real deal, the real truth is all I wanted to do was bury myself inside that sleeping bag and not get up. <laughs> no, and thank you for sharing. me. And I love that you just said, and by that time, even though it was still so early, your day was already fantastic, you know, yeah, and that's so cool because we all want to... I think that's the whole thing with a lot of podcasts. Even you'll hear people saying, what are your morning routines or this or my students at the training school yoga? Because the thing is, you know, we all know that the mornings are so powerful. Like if you can start your day, you know, feeling good and powerful and you can do that, then it kind of sets the tone for everything else. Absolutely. I was going to say thank you also for sharing that because you know, I, I was at my gym today in the beginning of the year, every January, it's like that. It's so crowded, you know, right, it's so right. crowded, like January's are like so crowded. And then February's so crowded, but a little less. And then it starts kind of winding down. Yeah. So that's why I was thinking about that today, earlier when I was working out. I was like, you know, I went to this one class that I go all the time. And all of yeah. a sudden there was like three times more people than the usual right. And I'm like, oh, yeah, God, it's January. But I just actually (laughs) wish like everybody, you know, would continue whatever it it. is that they're 
put their minds to do. Obviously, they decided that they wanted to be more healthy. Obviously, they decided that they want to become more fit. Obviously, they decided that was a good idea, which we agree sounds like a really good idea. So why not just try to maintain? I think it's this thing that we were just talking about. So that's why I really appreciate your advice here, because it's that thing that eventually it's like, ugh. I got to do this, you know? It sounds reductive. And I I would like to just, you know, kind of leave on that note in terms of where do you find that motivation? You hit it on the head and I kind of like some days are hard. It's hard. But when I found that in running for me, say it, what didn't save me from myself, running gave me the tools to save me from myself. And it's a gift that you give yourself. And if you can, oh, I love that. If you can look at it in terms of me going to the gym this morning is a gift. It's a present I'm giving myself. Oh, I love that. It's a gift that you give yourself. It is. And once I got my head around that and I understood that exercise wasn't some form of punishment or torture. Uh-huh. And here's the other you know, caveat to that was it wasn't an excuse for me to go eat like an awful human. Like oh, yeah. all those things made me happy and made me hopefully a better man and hopefully a better dad and person. So that gift makes my mental health is better. My physical health is better. My, you know, all of those things are better. And it got to a point then only some days were hard, Natalie. Like only some days were like, oh, I'm going to just force myself to do it. But most days I'm like, hey, all right, let's go. Let's yeah. go do the work. And Fun. let's go do the work. I get and to I, do yeah, this. I Woo-hoo. get to do it, right? <laughs> and look at how beautiful you are inside and out and kind and what kind of light you are. We don't have that light without the work. That's right. That's true. I, I agree with you that it, same for you. And I think it comes from within. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. And I love that you said that because even my the podcast I just released with John Joseph too, he said that he said, you know, we have to put the work. Yeah. There's yeah. work in the process, you know, of being yeah. uh, living this life in light or, you know, so yeah. which yeah. is it's just it's amazing, but it can be a really beautiful work. It can be a really inspiring. It can be a beautiful process as well. Well, I think you and John are both beautiful uh, and, and much <laughs> well, of Well, you too. Thank you. <laughs> I'm very grateful. Well, yeah. I have to ask you though. So from sure. so now what? So you 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 know, you got that super hardcore races and another yeah. one 30 days. So now what? Where are you at now? What's what are you looking forward to? Immediately, I'm looking forward to meeting some friends for dinner. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, yeah. my life is, yeah, it's good. You know, I'm going to finish our call. I'm going to do my dishes and set up my coffee. So that's all done in the morning. And then I'm going to go down to a local restaurant and catch up with some friends and have vegetarian quinoa-based tacos. I'm going to come home and read and, and go to bed. and yeah. Is there another did, race in the horizon? Yeah. Well, I just came off of one. So mm. I did this really amazing race in Phoenix over New Year's where I ran. I started on New Year's Eve in the morning and ran until New Year's Day. So 
I think I ran 111 miles, 110 miles in, in 21 hours and 39 minutes when I wrapped it up because I was dealing with some injuries. So I'm kind of just coming back from that. Okay. I will do a 50-mile race somewhere out in the American West in March. And although I have a qualifier, I'm very respectful of the process and until I am given an official invitation. I don't guarantee that I'm going to do it. My goal is to run the Badwater 135 again this year. Whoa. And then I'm going to run a 100-mile race in uh, October called the Havelina 100. Wow. And this and, is all very exciting to you? Like you? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm like a kid. And then there's some underground stuff that I'm working on here in Rocky Mountain National Park with some climbing friends that I'm very excited about, some stuff that's outside of my comfort zone, mm-hmm. requires, you know, some uh, climbing and stuff. So, yeah, that's the, uh, wow. that's what's going on. Wow. Well, I'm impressed. I'm super excited to follow, to keep seeing you and like seeing you where you're going with all this and, you know, keep following your accounts and your photos and just, I want to see how this goes, all of this. So well, it's exciting. Uh, it's exciting. Yeah, yeah, and you're well, and you're very uh, inspirational. So I really, you know, just want to thank you so much, and also just our whole community of Life on Earth listeners, because I feel you gave us many gifts today. Well, thank very you. Very kind of you, and open to share your experience—the good, the bad, all of it—and I think it's really cool. And I love what you're doing. So thank you. Thank you so much. And this has been an honor and a privilege and keep being extraordinary, Natalie. And thank you so much for having me as a guest. I so appreciate it. Joshua, if people want to, we didn't say, I I always put it on show notes, but it's nice to listen to. Where can they see you, find you, see your stuff? On Instagram, it's at Tumbleweed Ultra. And on uh, Facebook, it's just Joshua Stevens and the name Ombre Lobo. Hombre Lobo. <laughs> uh, that's right. The, the werewolf with my crazy beard. So, <laughs> yeah. But I will send you all the information for sponsors and deals that people can get through folks I work with for the show notes. But yeah, uh, just we definitely, we definitely yeah. appreciate all that. And I appreciate <laughs> you. We'll have a wonderful dinner with your friends and enjoy Thank the you. beautiful Colorado. <laughs> I love it out there. So, Well, I hope to see you in person out here soon. Yes, I would love to. So thank you for coming on the show. Bye. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Life on Earth podcast. If you love this show and you want to continue to listen to this show so that we can create more amazing content with more amazing people and enhance the planet, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. I truly and really appreciate that. Share this episode with someone who can benefit and I would so love it if you do that. Have an amazing day.